0: revelation ancient prophecy this series is a detailed
1: in-depth study of the book of revelation you will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of revelation really are here is your presenter
0: pastor baron Neustraten.
1: well good evening and it's wonderful to have you here again as we uh, we're going to study another chapter of the book of revelation I, i i trust you have enjoyed the study so far and that you find them extremely helpful uh, there is tremendous object lessons in any of those uh, chapters of the book of Revelation. Last week, uh, we, uh, we had a, certainly a very interesting one when um, we looked at the throne room of heaven. And that was fascinating. And so, as we will delve into this next chapter, I wonder if I might invite you just to bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are here, that we can uh, study your word and that we can draw the object lessons from the book of Revelation. We thank you for the wonderful gift of that book and Lord that we may learn from it and that we may retain the knowledge and apply it in our daily lives. And so bless us now, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The throne room of heaven, imagine having a look at that. Uh, It'd be too wonderful for words and maybe it even was for John the Revelator. We learned about the 24 elders in fact in fact they are strong angels if we go by the manuscript uh, number 12 she identifies them as strong angels not not members of the angelic host but the rulers of uh, perhaps other worlds elders they are representatives of the other worlds most likely the sons of god there uh, in the book of job The other thing that we learn besides God the Father on the throne is the four living creatures up and around the the throne. And we learn from the 10th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, as I explained last week, that these are cherubim and maybe seraphim is the same thing. We we, uh, have a tremendously high order of angels here. We we also uh, learn that a strong angel presented the question uh, with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll it's about worthiness now we stressed that last week it is about worthiness not about uh, a strength to have that ability it is about a, an, an integrity of character that must be worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals that means the history of this planet being unfolded And and being in charge of that history, too, by the way. And I looked and behold, in the midst, we saw that, in the midst of that throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, the lamb, though it had been slain, and here is the introduction, in fact, the arrival of Jesus who was a lamb as though it had been slain. And it is expressed here in symbolism, and you appreciate that. So we actually, though it's 95 AD, he's on the island of Patmos, but I stressed last time, we're actually going back to 31 AD, we're probably back 64 years, when Jesus arrives back in heaven. And uh, this is described in the fifth chapter, because Jesus and the angelic host... And therefore, the the ones that were resurrected and came with him, the first fruits, had not arrived yet in chapter 4. But the elders were there, so they had different identities. The seven seals is what we're going to look at. So Jesus takes off the seals and he introduces the first four. The four horses of the apocalypse. And that is in itself a fascinating story. And when you go by the account of what we see here, can I perhaps put it this way? We've looked at the seven churches. That is the history of the churches throughout the history as we know it. The different phases, if you like. Here we have again a coverage of the same time period, The same time period, starting with the apostolic church, right to the end of time. But this is more from heaven's perspective, the seals. And that's just an important difference. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, uh, with a voice like thunder, Come and see. Now, maybe that's directed to John, that he should come and see. Or maybe it's the horse and the rider that is going to be described. He looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. Now, a bow is an instrument of warfare. It reaches far and fast. And a crown was given to him. That is the rider on the horse. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And this is a very apt description of the early apostolic church. That had a tremendous, an incredible, incredible success. You know, the, the Christian message virtually exploded, if you like, in the early parts of the first century A.D. after Jesus had come back, and by the, the middle and the, the latter part of the first century A.D., all around the Mediterranean, you have Christian congregations. And so, very impressive. And this would sit well, this would actually sit well with the church of Ephesus. Which we have regarded, as you recall, to be the apostolic church. Then he opened the second seal. Now he opens the second seal. And I heard the the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, another horse fiery red went out and it says here it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one and another and there was given to him a great sword now the church that followed the church of Ephesus was the church of Smyrna Smyrna was the church that um, that suffered persecutions and it may well be that as we look at this that we have a very good uh example here of that persecution, the color of blood, red, the sword to kill. Uh people it's very hard to tell you how many people might have given their lives in the testimony for their loyalty to Jesus. We don't really know. But at various times there were Uh, incredible numbers, incredible numbers. The Roman pagan persecutions were intense at times. Smyrna represents the persecuted church from about 100 AD to 330 AD, when the Christian religion became, of course, uh, legal. Then he opened the third seal. We're now on the third seal. And I heard the living creature, another living creature say this, come and see, so I looked and behold, a black horse. A black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now, scales uh, is an instrument of commerce, business. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius. Now, a denarius is a day's wages. To get a quart of wheat for a day's wages is extraordinarily expensive. Some commentators have put it as more than 10 times the normal price of the day. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. There is obviously a shortfall, there is a shortage. Now, note this do not harm the oil and the wine. So now we have an era when the Christian religion becomes legal. In fact, in fact, it becomes fashionable to become a Christian. But unfortunately, in that era, there was a lot of compromise that you wouldn't find amongst the persecuted ones. And so you have a compromise, tremendous compromises. And uh, the Church of Pergamon is guilty of that. Tremendous compromises were made, and it was a matter of a grab for power... Prestige and maybe business interest, control, were the primary consideration as they departed from the pure spirituality that they had before. So Pergamum represents the church from three thirteen, three twelve 312 to 538. 538 is when the last of the Aryans that were opposing the papacy were destroyed, namely the Ostrogoth. And now we have then the papal era, the Roman papal era. And so he opened the fourth seal. And it's very interesting what you find here as a description. He opened the fourth seal and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. And so I looked and behold a pale horse, now, pale is the color of death. And that's exactly the description here. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades, that is hardest is really the domain of the, of the dead, it really is the grave. Followed with him. And power was given them over a fourth of the earth. That is a significant portion of, of this planet to kill with the sword, hunger and death, and it could also mean pestilence, and by the beast of the field. Now, beasts very often in symbolic terms are, of course, are are powers. And so we have now a presentation of an entity that now becomes dominant and it kills. It kills, it dominates um, on an enormous scale, one-fourth of mankind. That's a lot. And this is the equivalent of the church of Thyatira, which fits very well. That is the, the medieval church when papal Rome dominated so much, uh, particularly the European nations, but also the, the countries where there were the colonies. They had their dominance as well. And I think particularly of the Inquisition, the Spanish and the Portuguese ones. And so that's really a tragedy what happened for many centuries. Now we have the fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs. The cry of the martyrs. Now note this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Now that's interesting. How do I explain that? Well, the biblical concept of a soul is a body and the force of life. Does he see embodied martyrs under an altar? Well, again, this is very symbolic. And it's important that you remember that. The altar that we are talking about here is not an altar in heaven. So it's not that as if John would see embodied martyrs in heaven. He doesn't. In fact, it is symbolic, but the altar that he is talking about is the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice was in the courtyard. The courtyard at the temple, portable or Solomonic or zerubbabel Temple, the, the courtyard always represents the world. Because the altar represents Calvary where Christ died. And so he is now using this symbolic language to give voice to the unfairness what happened to the martyrs. But as he looks, the altar, of course, the altar is the altar of sacrifice. When they used to do their offerings, the excess blood was actually poured underneath the altar by the priests or the Levites that were doing the the actual offering. And the life is in the blood. And so he, he verbalizes a vision of life of the martyrs under that altar of sacrifice, which pertains to the earth again, purely symbolic. And for the testimony, They were were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they had held. They had been faithful. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on on the earth is an expression for those who are against God and therefore God's people. There are two things they ask for. To judge, God has to judge them and avenge them. Are the martyrs crying out for vengeance, for judgment against their oppressors? No, they're not. If you come to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, there's the incident of Cain and Abel. Now, you remember the story that God said to Cain, where's your brother? When he says, a my a brother's keeper, he just killed him. And God said that. He said the blood of your brother is crying out from the ground was it crying out from the ground no we have a saying that the evidence stares you in the face but is the evidence really staring you in the face no it's not but that is what it, the expression is so here is a, an indictment against the abuse and 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 unfairness cruelties that was perpetrated against God's people. And God will judge it, and God will avenge it. A white robe was given them. Again, totally symbolic. Was given them. White robe does mean, however, they saved. A white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Now, if you remember... The Church of Sardis, that is the Church of the Reformation, a Reformation that got some real traction there in the early part of the sixteenth century. Um, Martin Luther being the best well known one and and so, as it developed, there was persecution, there were tremendous quantities of executions of those who departed from the dominance of Rome and wanted to serve God according to their understanding and believe in conscience. Now it says here, the church of the Reformation, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in what? In white, synchronizing with the cry of the martyrs. We are on a progression in time, for they are worthy, God said. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So, this makes it plain that we are on par with the cry of the martyrs there in this chapter of the book of Revelation. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, uh, but will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus takes our defense. In the investigative judgment in heaven, we are not in present there, but He is there for our, on our behalf. And if we confess Him here, He will confess us there. That is the promise that is given to them. So, sardis is really—you could say—from 1517 to 1798. 1798—that 1798, is the official end of the papal. Uh, dominance. The official, because the Pope was taken prisoner by General Berchev of the Napoleonic Army. That was Pope Pius VI. Now. Until they have to wait, they were given a a rope, a white attire, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. God does not have a certain number of martyrs in mind, but history will unfold and others will be martyred. And uh, history has still have to be uh, come to its consummation. Before Jesus returns. Now the sixth seal. Fascinating. We are now getting into um, much more to our own time. So we're looking at this one. I look when they opened the sixth seal. And behold. There was a great earthquake. Now you say, well, that, what's so special about that? There have been many earthquakes but the very biggest one of all, the mother of them all, the daddy of them all, if you like, was the Lisbon earthquake. On the 1st of November, 1755, if you want to know about the Lisbon earthquake, you can go to the libraries of the world. It's so well documented. In six minutes, somewhere between 9 and 10 a.m., a rumbling started, and within six minutes, 60.000 60,000 people died. If you look at the detail, the incredible tsunami, the tremors to begin with, the tremors was felt over the whole of Europe, in even Greenland, into the West Indies, even the northern coast of Africa. They could feel the tremors that were caused here at the the Lisbon earthquake. The people that were living there were absolutely terrified. 60,000 in six minutes. Another 30,000 in the subsequent tidal waves. And then there were more that died as fires broke out in in Lisbon itself and destroyed so much. You know, people were running. They were running to the cathedrals for protection and hoping that all all the saints in those... Catholic churches would protect them. Of course, they never did. It was the most devastating earthquake on the record of this world. It was incredible. Now, remember the date, 1755. That's important, because we'll come back to that. The one that followed, and the sun became black, it says. The sun became black. That follows the earthquake. And this as a sackcloth of hair. It became dark. It became darkened. And the moon became like blood. Very specific. Very specific. The moon became like blood. And this is an occurrence on the May 19th, 1780, 25 years after the earthquake, over the whole continent of the Americas, New England they called it you had the most unusual phenomenon this was not a solar eclipse of any kind because we know that that could not have happened at that date till today till today there has been no explanation for this phenomenon till today nobody has ever been able to explain this tried but nobody can It started again, a normal day. And then it became darker. And then it became very eerie and the darkness set in. And the darkness was to such an extent that the children came from school. The people that were working in the fields, in the lands, came home. And everybody wondered what might have happened. And then it even became pits dark. And it wasn't until the end of the day that it lifted somewhat. Nobody has ever been explained, ever been able to explain why this found place. But you can go to the libraries of the world and you can read about it. The newspapers of the day report on that. All over the continent of the Americas, quite fascinating. Now, you remember the book of Joel, you might be. Now, Joel might be an eighth, ninth century BC prophet. He said this. The sun shall be turned into darkness. Note this. And the moon into blood. In that order. And like that. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now he lived about 800, 900 BC. This is not the first coming. What he is referring to is the second coming. That great and awesome. Day of the Lord. Fascinating that he commented on that and puts it in those wordings and descriptions. Now let's see what Jesus said and I'm going to need your attention here. You know you, it's an effort to learn about the book of Revelation. But I'm going to put it to you, it's God's gift to you, to us. That we may know that he is in charge. That he knows the end from the beginning. And that you can absolutely trust him. And so, what did Jesus say? Matthew 24. Note the language, very specific. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now the tribulation of those days, if you look at the phenomenon that we are describing, has to be the tribulation has to be the 1260 years of dominance of the papacy 538 AD to 1798 AD now it's an historical fact it's an historical fact that the persecutions and executions stopped some 25 30 years i think the last one might have been in 1862, uh, uh, 1762, I'm not sure. But at least 25 years before the Pope was taken prisoner by General Berthier in 1798, the persecutions and executions had stopped. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, that persecution that found place, the sun will be darkened. Now Jesus gives the orders that we should look for, that we should look for just before his coming. The sun will be darkened. We just read about that. The moon will not give its light in that order. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The first... Prediction is straight after the tribulation of those days, the persecutions and executions. The second prediction he makes, the sun will be darkened. The third prediction he makes, the moon will not give its light. Now, when you look at the darkening of the sun, that is 1780. Now, 1780, the persecutions had stopped, had ceased. Only just, but they had. So therefore, immediately after the persecutions, the tribulation, the sun, the darkening of the sun, is correctly described by Jesus. Then he goes on to say, the stars will fall from heaven. That become actually number four in the predictions. That's quite interesting. The correct chronological order and the right description, the right timing. What about the earthquake, you would say, that we just read about in the book of Revelation? Yeah, the, uh, the Lisbon earthquake. Now, I ask you to remember what the date was. The date is 1755. In 1755, there were still persecutions, there was still an inquisition that was active, and, and, and executions were finding place. So, Jesus did not start with the Lisbon earthquake. Because the tribulations were still ongoing. And that in itself is number five in the list of predictions. I think this is incredible. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. Uh, This is a shower of meteorites. And that that found place uh, in the early, very early morning hours when it was still dark, of course, of the 13th of November. 1833. Again, mainly over the continent of America. Now, uh, meteoric showers are not uncommon. But this one was of a size and an intensity. Estimations are 200,000 meteorites per hour for about three or four hours. We don't know how many. But that was the estimation. People could see it happening. And people were terrified. In fact, again, you can go to the libraries of the world and you can read in the newspapers where they recorded. People were going outside and they were kneeling in the middle of the street because they thought the end of the world had come, you see. That's what they thought. That's what they believed. Tremendous impact. And that is another incredible prediction that we're having here. And a fig tree like a fig tree as it drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind you know what is fascinating that one of the newspapers used that very language to describe the meteoric shower that found place on that day fascinating fascinating the stars will fall from heaven that is what jesus said and the powers of the heavens will be shaken now The powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're going to compare that to the book of Revelation. What I'm going to put to you is right here. That you and I are living between the stars will fall from heaven, 1833. And the powers of heavens will be shaken because that is the second coming. So that gives us an idea where we are in time. And we better be aware of that. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Well, because they have been against Him in their disobedience. And they have been against His people who obeyed His commandments. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. Clouds of glory, you've got to understand, are millions of, millions of angels clustered together with power and great glory an incredible sight and he will send his angels there you have it with the great sound of the trumpet which is causing bringing about the general resurrection of all those that are in him, and they will gather together his elect. The angels will direct you. You know, it's a comforting thought that if you lay to rest, your next recollection will be, will be the second coming. And the, the, the first person you look at is, is, is the angel who is commissioned to bring you to him, because we will meet our Lord in the air. Sometimes I think about that. And I I can't wait. Well, we have work to do. But you can look forward to this, because it will happen. You stay with him and it will. And they will gather together the elect from the four winds. Now why would all the angels come here to the earth to collect all of those who are in Christ? The reason is because they have been just resurrected. And when I used to look at this text, I wondered and pondered upon the belief systems that I was brought up with, that when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Why would the angels come back for me? If I, well, somehow made it into heaven, I'd be there already. And if I was in hell, well, that's forever. I was supposed to stay there. Amazing. When we read the Bible as it reads... We come to the conclusions of a correct doctrine. From one end of heaven to the other, that is the description over the planet, from everywhere, no one is overlooked. And then he said, "Now learn this parable from the fig tree. What parable? Well, this one: When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves that is in spring. He says, you know that summer is near. That's it. So he says, when you see all these things, the ones we just talked about, darkening of the sun, blood redness of the moon, the stars falling from heaven. When you see all these things, know that it is near. And that is where you and I live. In fact at the door. Now, I like that expression. You find it in, in the Laodicean church. Behold, I stand at the door, he said, and I knock. And we already discovered that the door of Laodicea can only be opened from the inside, and that's his invitation. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, and I'll come into him and dine with him, and he with me, you'll have fellowship with him. Beautiful. So... Back to Revelation 6. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Now Jesus, uh, the, the power of the heavens will be shaken. It's the same thing. The sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And note this. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now that's incredible. Every mountain and island. Every island... You know, this country is an island, was moved out of its place. We have, humanity has no conception of what will happen. The incredible power of Jesus and all the angels with him as it approaches this planet Earth. We will see things that have never occurred on this planet. Incredible. And we best be ready when he comes. They were moved out of its place. Upon this scene, someone said, the wicked look with terror and amazement. Imagine, imagine if you are one of the people who then suddenly realize you've had it wrong about what you believed. You had it wrong about how you lived. You had it wrong about being against the people of God. You had it all wrong about God. What a terrible realization that would be. Terrible. And the kings of the earth, the great man, the rich man, the commanders, note the language, the mighty man, every slave and every free man, it doesn't matter who you are, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains. Why would you, why would you hide yourself? Fear. They said to the mountains and the rocks, it's terrible when you start talking to mountains and rocks, But even worse, when you ask for this, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. The tremendous realization they have been wrong. We got to make sure we're right. So we don't fall under the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And here is the question. This is the question that we're going to deal with next week. Who is able to stand? Now, this is the question. When Jesus comes back, and we just look at the Bible, the way it describes the return every island, every rock it's amazing what will happen. So, He comes back. Unless we are right with Him, we will be terrified. And so how can I, how can you, how can you be sure, how can you be absolutely sure that you have nothing to fear? In fact, the opposite is true, that you may look forward to his coming because you will be saved. That's it. And that will be discussed next week. We will look at the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth We will look at 144,000. Are they literal? Are they symbolic? And we'll discover the truth about that. Uh, Some are missing. Why are they missing? And we will look and we will look at the multitude, the great multitude of all nations that nobody can count. We will look at all of these things as we explore further that wonderful book, the book of Revelation. I hope you join me again. If you have questions... Uh, waitaraevent at gmail.com I'm happy to answer them and I really, really hope you will join me again as we go and delve further into this wonderful book the book of Revelation. Can I invite you just to bow your heads please? Heavenly Father we thank you that we could study your word once again the incredible promises the incredible roadmap that it really is for us here today, the relevance for us here today, that we must be on the side of Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to make the right choices and encourage others to do the same. Bless us now, be with us, keep us near to your heart. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit Waitarachurch.org.au.
2: is coming Again. again.
0: Jesus is coming again from 3ABN's album Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 2. Coming up next, Marlia DeFong will now sing I Want to Go to Heaven. Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. A Girl from Moab, A Life of Loyalty. Our people are descended from Abram's nephew Lot, from his eldest daughter. Lot's family was almost wiped out in the destruction of Sodom, many years ago. His wife had died because she turned around to see her home going up in flames, despite an angel warning the family not to look back. She was immediately turned into a statue of salt. Since that time, our tribe settled in the southwest part of Canaan. At this time, the people of Israel were liberated from Egypt. They were soon to enter the promised land that God had said he would give them. There was a spirit of hatred between these people and us. Our king would not let them pass through our land. When I heard the story of our nation's history, I thought our king's decision was unfair. Israel had said they would go only on the highway and not take any of our crops nor even drink our water. Sadly, Our king's decision turned out very badly for us in the years ahead. When I was growing up, something unusual happened. A family came into our town from the city of Bethlehem in the province of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. We had heard there was a severe famine in their country. This family had come to stay in our part of Moab as the famine had not extended to our area. The head of the family was Elimelech, his wife's name is Naomi. They had two sons, Marlon and Chilian. I was fascinated to learn from an elder in our village the meaning of these names. Elimelech meant, My God is King. Naomi meant, My Pleasantness. Marlon meant, Sickness. And Chilian meant, Wasting. I was surprised to hear that the parents, whose names had lovely meanings, should give their sons such unhappy names. Incidentally, my name means compassion. Our village people soon got to know Elimelech's family, even befriending them, for they were such pleasant people to know. Sadly, not long after coming to our land, Elimelech, the father of the family, the one his family depended on to provide for them, died suddenly. Somehow they were able to survive with hard work and help from their neighbours. My friend Orpah and I were similar in age to Marlon and Chilion. We grew up together, became close friends, and as happens with young people, we fell in love and married. I married Marlon and Orpah married Chilion. However, our happiness was not to last. A short time later, both Marlon and Chilion died. We were devastated. We couldn't believe that all our plans for children and a long life together were smashed on the rocks like the breaking waves. Naomi, our mother-in-law, must have felt her loss the most, as she had not only lost her husband, but both sons as well. The family had been in Moab for only ten years. Following this tragedy, Naomi discussed the future with the remaining members of her family, Orpah and myself, her two daughters in law. She told us that she must return to Bethlehem, her hometown, for her family roots were there. It might even be possible to have returned to her Elimelech's ancestral land, as she was part of his family. Orpah and I said we would go with her. We couldn't bear seeing her making the long journey by herself to Bethlehem in Judah. Naomi said we should stay in our own country, but we wanted to go with her. Soon after, we started on our long journey. We took a few belongings packed in bags that we could carry on our backs. A short distance down the road, Naomi told us to go back to our parents' homes and let her go on alone. I was a little surprised that Orpah decided to do that. She kissed and embraced her mother-in-law for the last time. And returned to her hometown. However, I had made up my mind, regardless of what Naomi said. I remember my exact words that were Do not urge me to leave you now, or tell me not to go with you on this journey. For wherever you go, I shall go. Where you stay, I shall stay. Your people shall become my people, and your God shall be my God. I want to die in the place where you die. And be buried there also. May the Lord punish me if I do not fulfil my promise, if anything but death comes between you and me. Naomi could see I was determined to go with her. She hugged me tightly and we walked on together. Many days later, we arrived at Naomi's hometown. The people of Bethlehem couldn't believe their eyes when they saw Naomi after being so many years away. They also wondered, who was this young woman with her? Is this really Naomi, they asked. She replied, quoting the meaning of her name. Do not call me pleasantness anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For I fear that God has dealt very severely with me in the deaths of my husband and my sons. When I left Bethlehem, our family was complete. But now look at me. All I have left Is one precious daughter-in-law. I soon discovered that the people of Bethlehem were very kind. They provided a house for us until we could see what the future held. The first thing for me was to obtain work. Naomi was past working in the fields, gleaning at harvest time as I was about to do. Fortunately, the barley harvesting had just commenced. So I asked Naomi if I could go out and, and glean for us. She told me that she had a relative through her husband, whose name was Boaz. He was a wealthy man, and it just so happened that the part of the large field that was being reaped belonged to Boaz. This was where I started to collect the stalks of grain the reapers had left behind. Gleaning was a long-standing practice in Israel, for it provided for the poor and was required in the writings of Moses, I was told." I had not been out in the field long when Boaz came out from Bethlehem to see how the harvesting was going. He greeted his men in a kindly way and asked them about the young woman gleaning in the field he had never seen before. They told him that I was the young Moabite woman who had recently returned with Naomi. Boaz came over to where I was. I hardly dared to look at this great man. He said, My daughter... Do not go into another field to glean, but stay close by the other girls who are gleaning in my field. Do not worry about the men working here, for I have told them they must not treat you unkindly in any way. He reminded me not to forget there were large water pitches in the shelter near the field with refreshing cool water for me to drink. I was overwhelmed by this man's kindness and replied, I don't know why you have even noticed me and have spoken to me, seeing I have come from another country. Well, young lady, all of Bethlehem knows how kind you have been to Naomi, seeing you would not let her make the long journey from Moab to Bethlehem alone. You left behind your homeland and your family. Now you are working hard all through the heat of the day to provide for her and yourself. May the Lord God of Israel give you his great blessings, for you have thrown your lot in with his people. All I could say was, I hope you will always look kindly on me, my Lord, for your words have comforted me here in this strange land. Throughout the day, Boaz ensured I was well looked after. At the midday meal, he made certain that I had plenty of nourishing food to eat, ever giving me more than I needed so that I would take home plenty to Naomi. I overheard him say to his reapers to purposely drop more stalks behind for me so that I would have a good result from my day's gleaning. When I arrived home that evening, Naomi could hardly believe how much grain I had gleaned during the day. I told her that it wasn't just that I had worked hard all day, but the man who owned the field ensured that more than usual stalks were left for me to collect as I followed the reapers over the field. That is wonderful, my daughter. Whose field did you reap in? When I told her the man's name was Boaz, as she had hoped it would be, she almost was speechless. She said, Praise the Lord, for he is a near relative. God has not forgotten us after all. I didn't understand all she meant in what she said at that time, but I soon learnt how much this man was to be part of my future. The barley was soon harvested, and not long after, the wheat was also ready to harvest. This gave me many weeks of work, and I was able to gather sufficient grain to last until the next harvest. While I was still gleaning, Naomi told me what I should do to work out her plans to secure my future and to ensure the law of the relative redeemer was put in place. This was very much a part of the culture of Israel. It ensured the preservation of ancestral land so that the family property would be preserved. Naomi explained that on a particular night, Boaz would be at the threshing floor and would sleep there that night. She told me to wash myself, use a fragrant perfume, and put on my best garment. Then, when he was asleep, I was to uncover his feet and lie down near his feet. She said that Boaz would tell me what to do next. I did exactly as Naomi said. I was feeling just a little nervous and very excited at the same time, for I felt a whole new future was opening up before me. That night, Boaz told me he would fulfil the role of relative redeemer for me, however, Another man was an even closer relative than he was. Boaz would discuss this issue with him. If that man fulfilled this role, then that was how it was meant to be. If he chose not to, then Boaz would do it. I was secretly hoping that Boaz would be the one. I left it all in God's hands as I had come to trust him in my life. The way things worked out must have been in God's plan. The nearer relative declined to fulfill the role of relative redeemer. Boaz entered into this covenant before the elders of the city. To seal the covenant, the other relative gave Boaz one of his sandals, confirming that he agreed to the arrangement. Boaz then told the elders that they were witnesses that he had bought the land that had belonged to Elimelech and through him what would have become Marlins and Chileans. More than that, this covenant meant that Boaz would marry the young woman from Moab, to have children by her, and in so doing, the names of those who had died would be continued. So we were married. My joy was full, for not only did I have a kind and caring man as my husband, my future was no longer uncertain but secure. What more could I wish for? We named our baby Obed. God's blessing was upon me as I lived to see his son, Jesse, and my grandson, David. My name is Ruth. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.